three down, seven to go as the Tory leadership battle continues. But who will make it through to the terrifying end-of-season finale against Boris the Joker Johnson? Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast, which arrives at the end of the first full week of Tory leadership madness. I know I'm massively excited too. Boris Johnson is the soar away winner of the first round, picking up 114 votes from Tory MPs far ahead of everyone else. And let's face it, he is now almost certain to be in the final two that we put to Tory party members later in the summer. So the real battle already is over who's going to take second spot in that runoff. Now, at the moment, it's the desperately dull Jeremy Hunt. He has as little charisma as Boris Johnson has too much. That is perhaps the choice that we will be asked to make in the coming weeks. Well, not us, of course. None of us are actually getting a say. Hunt is second, but he's only six votes ahead of Michael Gove. Gove is 10 votes ahead of Dominic Raab. In the week to come, we'll have further rounds of voting in this terrifying talent contest in which talent does not appear to be a particularly decisive factor. Let's bring in Robert Meakin and start by looking at the results of the first round. Robert, we knew that Boris Johnson had 80 or so MPs who had publicly pledged support to him. In the end, he got 114. That is basically enough to guarantee a spot in the second round. It is more than we thought. And already it seems that his position as one of the final two is pretty much cemented. And not long ago, there was this theory that Boris wasn't all that popular in his own uh, parliamentary party. But clearly, by this enormous win in the first round, it, it just does prove that, A, I think a lot of Tory MPs think that, that he's the one that will save their skins. And B, they're ready just to put aside all those sort of other reservations about him as a personality presently, that they, they see there's a, a short-term gain here. I wonder, does it prove that Boris Johnson is more popular than we imagined? Or does it prove, as you say, that they're just thinking who's most likely to keep them in their jobs and maybe the guy they can't stand is the only realistic option for them? I mean, he has been trying so hard in the last week to look serious. We absolutely know Boris Johnson can't keep up that serious act, that when he is under pressure, we saw it in his news conference, his first and so far only public appearance at which he's faced questions in this campaign. We know that when he faces a tough question, he resorts to playing with his hair and pretending he didn't hear the question and joshing and all of this nonsense. Even so, even despite that behaviour, it's very hard to see something happening that would now stop him actually getting through to the runoff. I've kept on reminding myself of the, the very wise words of a political commentator from about a, about a year or so ago who said that the Tory party will only finally turn to Boris Johnson when it's on life support. And I think that pretty much sums up the current uh, situation. Yes, it's, it's being very, very carefully managed at the moment because they're very aware of the pitfalls of him being the front runner, the obvious pitfalls of him committing some sort of blunder. There were plenty of weeks ahead still. There's plenty of room for Boris, you know, Boris Johnson's trademark gaffes to come through. But there seems to be a consensus. Yes, Boris can be a bit of a charlatan. Yes, he can be a bit of a clown. But people are still willing to go with it because they still think he is their safest bet. So, as you say, the battle is pretty much now who's going to come second in this race. Now, Jeremy Hunt is currently in second place, but he is basically neck and neck 
with Michael Gove. There's only six votes between them. I Hunt's launch this week. He had the big hitters. You know, he got Amber Rudd's endorsement. He got Penny Mordaunt's endorsement. But he was also very, very dull. He's like a sleeping pill in a suit. And and he is trying to sort of bore us into submission as the dull, safe option. It really did seem to be choose me for dull, stable, dull leadership. Now, the thing is, they went for dull, stable, dull leadership last time. And look where that got them. Of course, that's completely turned upside down now. It's exactly what they want. They do now want the big, brash, flamboyant character battering Brussels. They've tried the boring route. That's failed. Jeremy Hunt looks too much like a Theresa May uh, Mark II. Yes, he's he's calm. He's statesman-like. Yes, he'd be on top of his brief. But it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like it's the right time for him. It feels a bit like he's come second now. But as the votes start to shake down in the rounds that will follow next week, that he could very easily be overtaken. Now, at the start of the week, you would have assumed that Michael Gove's campaign was dead in the water. It seems that everybody in the world was shocked to discover not only that people in the media hoover up industrial quantities of cocaine not all of them i just like to say but some of them but also that politicians are sometimes hypocrites who say one thing while doing another now while honestly i wasn't terribly surprised by the revelation that gove had snorted coke 20 years ago and uh, while also condemning other people it did seem that it was going to derail his campaign equally I thought his launch was pretty good, actually. He spoke, I'm sure it was planned, but he spoke in a way that appeared a bit off the cuff, reminded me a little bit of Cameron's speech to the conference when he was running for leader 14 years ago. And it seemed perhaps not to set right all the problems he created through the the cocaine story, but it seemed to perhaps just move on a little bit. Michael Gove does have the the image problem of being the the backstabbing assassin going back to 2016. I think he's just about staggered back onto both feet. Whatever you think of Michael Gove, he's a fantastic erudite performer in terms of being a debater, in terms of his performances in the House of Parliament. And I'm guessing if you're Michael Gove, Gove, if you're a Michael Gove supporter presently, you're thinking, look, our man's had a, a rough few days. He was never, ever going to get the sort of numbers Boris Johnson was going to get in terms of the first round. But if he can survive, if he can clamber up into second place and get down to the runoff against Boris, our man as a debater against Boris could really show him up. Someone has to be the second person on that ballot. So if Jeremy Hunt is too dull and Michael Gove is too tainted by his backstabbing power, well, who is it going to be? It isn't going to be Andrea Leadsom. There was no repeat of the Leadsomania of three years ago. She only got 11 votes this time. It isn't going to be Esther McVeigh. She only got nine. And then there was Mark Harper. I've absolutely no idea, but 10 people have heard of him, presumably including himself. Uh, now, that means that there are 30 votes up for grabs in the next round of candidates that have been knocked out. And there are Four candidates who've got through, but at the moment don't have the 33 votes that they would need to survive the second round. So Dominic Raab, the younger version of Boris Johnson, will perhaps, I think, be disappointed with where he's come with 27 votes. A pretty poor start, too, for Sajid Javid, but I think he's got the potential to grow a bit of support. I was surprised that Matt Hancock got 20 to be honest. And Rory Stewart managed to cling on. He got 19 and moves forward into the next round. And honestly, if I was going to pick one of these four to survive and move forward, 
it would be Rory Stewart. We talked last time about how every Tory leadership election has a surprise package. You know, 14 years ago, the people around David Davis were absolutely convinced that this was a, this was a shoe in was a walk in the park. Who's this kid, David Cameron, who's only been an MP for four years, who came up and, and stunned him and, and took the leadership? Now, I am not suggesting that Rory Stewart in a one to one final round battle with Boris Johnson would necessarily beat him. But what I am saying is that of the 10 candidates who went into this ballot this week, he's the only one who has campaigned in a way that is in any way interesting outside of the Conservative Party. He's the only one who's trying to engage the wider population in the choice of the next Prime Minister. His campaign has just looked fresh, modern, different, dare I say even honest at times. The numbers are always going to be against him. I just think Rory Stewart's effect could be the future makeup of the Tory membership because obviously there's a big outrage right now that you've only got this small section of the population who are going to choose effectively our next Prime Minister. And now the the current Tory membership is ageing. I just wonder, with Rory Stewart, that he represents another wing of conservatism. Dare I say, judging by the um, the reaction he's been getting on the streets, we're not talking about necessarily card-carrying members or even people who have considered themselves Tory voters in the past, but he has connected with people. And I just wonder, Rory Stewart could inspire a new sort of membership drive inside the Tory party. That means Rory could be in a strong position next time around. I think his effect on the Tory membership is something to watch. Well, yeah, and for reasons that we'll probably get into a little bit later, you know, whoever wins this race may well not be the longest lasting Conservative Party leader, may actually last maybe half the time that Theresa May does, meaning there could be another vacancy by the end of next year or something, or even sooner, depending on how things play out. So actually, I'm slightly surprised that there aren't more people of the, of the, of the likes of Rory Stewart throwing their hat in for next time, trying to raise their profile a bit. Let's just go back to Boris Johnson briefly, though, because you mentioned earlier how the, the, the Tories were basically only turned to Boris when they were absolutely desperate. Surely they must be aware of Boris Johnson's track record of saying to the person directly in front of him whatever he thinks he needs to say to make them believe that he agrees with them. He's done that all his life, all the way through his political career. He has adopted a a series of directly contrary positions that get him out of whatever hole he is in right now. Take, for example, his pledge at the start of this week to raise the tax threshold for higher rate tax from 50 to 80 thousand pounds that is a massively regressive move that would however be very beneficial to an awful lot of members of the conservative party who we know are older and generally more affluent than the general population so there's a policy that is absolutely attuned to that hundred and fifty thousand selectorate of tories the problem being You've got absolutely no prospect of getting it through Parliament. And even if you did, it would be political suicide for a Conservative Prime Minister to say to people on average earnings, you're going to have to pay more tax, increase national insurance, say, in order to fund a tax cut for the phenomenally wealthy. Which leads me to suspect he has absolutely no intention of doing it. It's just a thing that he says to make people like him but he isn't going to do it. I don't think they actually care. They know that Boris has form, to put it politely, in this regard, but they're scared. 
MPs are anxious about their futures. The Tory membership is is anxious about the party's future. They're afraid they're going to lose their precious Brexit and they're ready to give Boris a pass when it comes to all these misdemeanours, when it comes to this form for telling one person one thing, someone else something else. They think Boris is the only one who can wave that magic wand. But I just wonder if... If, say, Boris is is just lying about this £80,000 tax threshold for the rich, well, is he adopting a similarly loose attitude to his Brexit policy? Because he says he's willing to take the country out without a deal, if necessary, on the 31st of October. Well, what if he's just saying that now to win this race? Then he gets his feet under the table, says... Oh no, no, we're going to have to delay. We, we're not, we're not ready. We're going to have to delay. And then when the Tory party rises up in fury against him, he says, "Well, it's that, or Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street." So, so which do you want? Is it possible that even on an issue as big as Brexit, he's just saying whatever he needs to say, regardless of whether it's true or whether he intends to honour it? Meanwhile, the odds on a no-deal Brexit have shortened this week after MPs rejected what may well have been their last chance to stop it in Parliament. This, Robert, was a Labour move to try to seize control of the parliamentary timetable and then legislate to stop no deal. It was rejected reasonably narrowly in a vote in the Commons. Now, it was the last opposition day debate that the government is obliged to give in this parliamentary session. So effectively, that route to stopping a no deal Brexit, taking over the parliamentary timetable, tabling legislation, trying to get it through... That route is pretty much closed off now. I'd have to say it does cap off what has been a fairly, to put it politely, an unimpressive performance by Her Majesty's opposition in these months gone by regarding Brexit. That was their, their last act to try and show some sort of initiative in terms of the parliamentary machinery. We still wait to see any clarity from Corbyn with his position on Brexit. There are plenty of people in the, in the Labour parliamentary party, we know there was a, a very, very explosive meeting with his MPs this week, who have just been tearing their hair out the way the party hierarchy have handled uh, Labour's position on this in, in the weeks and months. They, they have done themselves no favours whatsoever. They've infuriated a great deal of their natural support, infuriated a great deal of their own uh, membership. But Corbyn just hasn't had uh, the political courage to ever get off the fence. As of now, it shows no sign of doing that it just feels a bit like events are moving a bit too fast for them to to follow I mean, yes that, i think so that, that yeah. parliamentary labor party meeting on monday was apparently the worst of jeremy corbyn's leadership now come on past meetings have hardly been champagne and roses have they so for it to be the worst one it would have to be pretty spectacularly bad well, last week we saw emily thornbury given what was described by some in parliament as a punishment beating of being banned from her usual job of standing in for corbyn at prime minister's questions now the perception of this was it was because when the european election results came in she was very critical of labor's failure to take a clear position of being opposed to brexit and in favor of a second referendum when you start doing things like that you're very close to a total collapse of confidence in the shadow cabinet and while you can say as corbyn supporters do over and over again oh but he's got the membership you know the membership are with him 
Yes, but his shadow cabinet depends on having a group of relatively senior people in the Labour Party who are willing to work with him. If you start turning on them as well, then it really is starting to get a little bit, you know, in the bunker attitude and you're starting to run out of people to offend dissent has started to to come out from old allies essentially from areas where he before were considered in lockdown with him in terms of the, the corbyn project it starts to get a little more precarious when the likes of emily thornbury start to be at war i think with, with the with the, with the corbyn hierarchy i think if the likes of john mcdonald likes of emily thornbury start to get unhappy then you think there are potential problems for Corbyn and the Labour Party you know, traditionally does a good civil war very well and there clearly is a lot of bad blood between Corbyn Seamus Milne, you know, his right hand left hand man, whatever you want to call him and people just on the outside of that. If legislating to stop a no-deal Brexit is no longer an option, then perhaps the only route that would be left is a no-confidence vote, is to try and stop a new Prime Minister determined to take Britain out of the EU without a deal by having a vote of no-confidence in the government. Now, we have discussed this in the past and said that it was possible that maybe a handful of the most committed anti-Brexit conservatives, the likes of Dominic Grieve or Justine Greening, say, might be willing in those circumstances to cross the floor and vote to bring down a conservative government led by someone who was going to take Britain out without a deal at the end of October. However, as many leadership candidates have pointed out this week, that leads to one of two scenarios either jeremy corbyn ends up in downing street by cooking up a coalition of some sort without an election or more likely there'd be a general election if there was a general election before brexit has been resolved then nigel farage is going to stand brexit party candidates against the tories that's going to split the right-wing pro-brexit vote that's going to allow labor to gain dozens of seats from the conservatives and that's probably going to put jeremy corbyn into downing street so i suspect that means that taken with the failure of the Labour attempt to legislate against no deal this week, that we are now in a position where there's basically nothing that Parliament can do if the next Prime Minister is genuinely determined to take the country out of the EU without a deal. Although, just because of this, you know, bizarre, hysterical political climate we, we now live in, I don't think we can rule it out, of course, completely. The emotion and rage that would be felt in certain parts of the Conservative Party, if we did head for that no deal, maybe we can't underestimate that some people might be ready to fall on their swords, might even be prepared to temporarily wreck their own party's political power base out of the anger that the country was heading this in this direction. I do still wonder whether, you know, if ever there was a, a vote of no confidence in the government, whether some Tory MPs would be so furious with, for argument's sake, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, that they'd think to hell with it. This has gone on long enough. This is a once in a generation issue. And we, we just have to take a moral stand here. And we will, we're not prepared to let him do this. I certainly think that if anything is going to push them over the edge, the likes of Kenneth Clark, Dominic Grieve, whatever, if anything is going to push them, it's this threat of proroguing Parliament. It's this Exa threat of indeed, suspending yes. Parliament so that MPs can't do anything. A, 
it flies in the face of the whole notion of Brexit being about restoring the sovereignty of Parliament to then say, well, because Parliament is rather inconveniently refusing to bend to my will, I am going to suspend Parliament in a sort of Hugo Chavez kind of style of running the country. Dominic Raab actually seems genuinely excited by the idea. I think he increasingly believes that he's some sort of apocalyptic cartoon character that only he can deliver the justice that Britain so richly deserves some sort of some sort of judo trained judge dread or something but boris johnson as you say he, he won't rule it out now that could be as we discussed before because he's just willing to say anything that will push him a little bit further to winning the leadership election but it is extraordinary to think that people who are putting themselves up for the job of prime minister are willing as a campaign tactic to advocate dismantling democracy and the other side of it which i don't think you can underestimate people in the civil service have responded with horror to this and the thing they've said is what position do you then put the queen in when the new prime minister goes to the queen asking her permission to prorogue parliament to stop it from sitting until after the end of october to achieve a political end without going and getting a mandate for it what position does that put the queen in and you might think well who cares about the queen go back to 2010 and the coalition negotiations when the parties all started talking to each other the head of the civil service gave them two pieces of advice only two and said the longer it takes you to come up with a deal the bigger the impact on the economy and number two it's your job to work this out you must not put the queen in the position of having to make a choice between one side or the other and you'd be amazed within the british establishment how important that principle is and the actions that could follow if it was felt a boris johnson a dominic raab was about to try and do that you would properly be into constitutional crisis territory. We cannot underestimate the level of, frankly, a political civil unrest, you know, if, if such a move was made that they did try to prorogue Parliament. Just seeing Rory Stewart just red in the face with fury saying, if they dare do that, we'll go and set up our own Parliament across the way and fight them all the way. I, it, it would be an extraordinary, bizarre terrifying sequence of events to be honest if anyone was stupid enough to try that we, we're going back to sort of 17th century days here it, it would be an incredible uh, state of affairs well at the end of this week of bizarre and dangerous talk of outlandish and doubtless false promises made by people all fighting in a sack to be the person who loses to boris johnson in a few weeks time we need something at the end of this to cheer us up who knew that would come from Lorraine Kelly. The highlight of this week of Tory leadership frenzy for me was the way that Lorraine Kelly managed to cut completely dead in two seconds her former colleague Esther McVeigh. When Piers Morgan asked her on, on Good Morning Britain this week, do you remember working with Esther? And Lorraine from the safety of another studio went, mm-hmm, yeah, do. Anyway, coming up later. That was wonderful. That was just a wonderful wonderful moment if only we could all be so overtly rude on television to people we didn't like and having had the uh, 
you may say misfortune to be in the media for a while myself now i i, I can't help sniffing there's there's more of a uh, there's more of a backstory here that, that, that what may have gone on off camera between the pair of them when they were both uh, both gmtv there, there, there may have been one person trying to get some trying to uh, promote herself over the other i can't so possibly say who would have been capable of doing that but it, it seems to me there's a bit more than just lorraine uh, taking against esther's current politics i think i think there was there's a bit more of a story dating back 25 years whatever it is to that i am going to take lorraine kelly's example like you robert i am a many years veteran of the media industry and so right let's do it i am now going to reel off a list of the people in the media industry who have got my goat in the last few years yes it's time for your comeuppance chapter one liars oh sadly we're out of time that is a pity. Maybe we'll do it next time. Uh, don't forget, at partygamespodcast.com, you can sign up to subscribe to this podcast. You can also listen to all the past editions and relive the last leadership election if you've got a particularly perverse streak of masochism to you. Uh, we're also updating pretty much constantly at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Party Games Pod. Thank you to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.